Well, good morning, and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. A couple of faces that are back with us today, and we're so thankful, I'm so thankful to see you this morning, all of you. As you know, we gather, we regularly gather uh, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, uh, traditionally the first day of the week. We do this because God commands us to physically gather with one another. Now, we know that the gathering here on Sunday is not the only time that we gather. This is really, I would say, the culmination of our week. It should be the culmination of, of time that we spend together. You know, in our, our culture, we sometimes can sometimes face negative social stigmas for our commitment to Christ and His church. You know, I experienced this in my own life. Uh, my commitment to Christ impeded my climb up the corporate ladder. I, I became known as a Christ follower, and, and it impeded that climb. As a serious follower of Christ, you may, you may have the same thing happen to you. Uh, you may not be included in the so-called in-crowd. But as of today, here in the United States, here in America, we don't face physical persecution, by and large. Uh, truly, we live, if you want to say it this way, we live in the lap of luxury compared to many of our brethren living today or in the past. The writer of Hebrews tells his readers to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, reading this verse, we might ask, how are we to stimulate one another to love and good deeds if we never spend time with one another? And we have to spend time with one another to do that. The writer goes on to make that same point in Hebrews 10.25. He says, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, we see the day drawing near, do we not? We need to recognize the, the backdrop of social stigma and physical persecution during that time, during the time of, of the writing of Hebrews. We need to, to understand that to fully appreciate the writer's exhortation. You see, at the time this was written, Christians were becoming outcast and were facing physical persecution from their brethren, their, their Jewish brethren. And some were forsaking the gathering. Some as that were Christians were forsaking the gathering to avoid that social stigma and backlash of associating with Christ's church. Some were even denying that Jesus is the Messiah the Messiah, the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that, that true followers of Yahweh have always faced great persecution and opposition. In Hebrews eleven thirty six through 39 he describes the, some of the persecutions that they face. They experience mocking and scourging and chains and imprisonment and stoning and even being sawn in two. And that list keeps going on and on and on. But through it all, God's true people, God's true church, if you will, never, has never wavered in their faith. The writer of Hebrews gives the reason for this in Hebrews 10.23. In Hebrews 10.23, he says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who, who promised, he who promised is faithful. So, Beloved, we gather as, as saints, no matter the difficulty that we face, because the one whom we are worshiping, the one whom we gather in his name, the one who promised is faithful. It's faithful. During our time today in this country, we don't face great persecution for the faith. But when that changes, and it will change, we serve a God who promised to remain faithful to his people. Well, today, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that Matthew is clearly presenting Jesus as the long-awaited divine king who came to earth, won redemption for his people, and suffered and died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. We know that he has ascended to the throne of God and that he will be returning in triumphant glory as the conquering king. You might say that Matthew wrote a defense of Jesus' claim to be Israel's Messiah. Now let me connect these thoughts. If Jesus is the true king, if Jesus is going to return from heaven, then a short time of suffering for his sake pales in comparison to what is to come. 
in the words of the Apostle Paul for, in, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is, notice that, momentary, meaning that it's short, it's brief, light as opposed to heavy, that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Church, we're taking the time to study the Gospel of Matthew so that you and I, so that you and I will have great confidence that Jesus is the King, that He is reigning from His throne, and that He will, in fact, return for His people. Now, you may have heard history repeats itself. You may have heard that phrase. The church may be enjoying relatively peaceful days, but it won't last. When difficult times do come, when they truly come, we think that they, you know, we think at times that they're here today, but they're not. They're not truly difficult times. But when they do come, you need to be ready. I need to be ready. We need to be ready as a church. Let me tell you this. Preparing yourself spiritually, preparing yourself by understanding His Word, understanding His promise, understanding God's faithfulness, and spending time with God's people are the best ways to ready yourself spiritually. With that, let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for your goodness to us. Father, may we be serious about our... May we seriously follow you. Not just show up on a Sunday in order to check a box. Father, may we truly understand that this is life and death. That this is a matter of eternal consequence. Father, we pray that even this morning that you would, your spirit would work among the people and that you, you would lift their hearts up so that they may serve you even in the difficult days which are coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans, or Romans, Matthew one eighteen where we find ourselves this morning. Let me read down through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place in order that, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. Now, Spanish philosopher George Santaya is credited with the old adage, I mentioned it before, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Of course, he is encouraging people to be a student of history to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. Every generation seems to believe that they have things figured out. They think history cannot repeat itself. This is why old folks always tell stories of their experiences to the youth. Prior generations may warn us, but time after time, those warnings, as we know, largely go unheeded. They say, they say and I quote, things aren't the same as they were back then. Have you heard that, that phrase? Invariably, this proves, to be an unwarranted conf- this proves to be unwarranted confidence and even bravado. Now, most of us know how to apply the principle of remembering the past personally, do we not? When a young child touches a hot stove, they usually remember not to touch the stove when mom is cooking. How many of you go around touching hot stoves? We don't do that, right? Because we know, because we've experienced the heat. 
Most of us did stupid things in the past that we now avoid like the plague. As an example, I do my best not to tailgate other drivers because I have experienced the consequences of doing so. My kids will laugh at this. They're not here right now. But my kids would laugh at this if they were because I'm constantly on them not to follow too closely to cars in front of them. I try to remind them that there are two teachers in life. There's wisdom and experience. And I'm trying to give them uh, wisdom from a driver who has experienced the negative consequences of following too close. Truly, history is full of repeated mistakes and failures which lead to similar outcomes. For example... The Great Depression began in 1929 and lasted several years after the stock market crash began, on, which, which began on, or which happened on October 24, 1929. Now, by October 29th, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had dropped 31%, marking one of the worst declines in U.S. history. By July 8, 1932, the, the Dow had dropped all the way down from, I think it was over 300, down to 41.22. An 89% loss. An 89% loss. It was the worst bear market in terms of percentage loss in modern U.S. history. The crash wiped out many people who were forced to sell businesses at pennies on the dollar. Many lost all of their life savings. Most lost faith in the markets, which caused a snowball effect. Banks closed and unemployment peaked at over 20%. There was almost no economic growth for a decade. decade. Now, more recently, <coughs> in most of our lifetimes, in, the, in late 2007, the stock market dropped 54% over an 18-month period. The so-called Great Recession paralleled the Great Depression in many ways. Both were preceded by periods of prosperity. Both came at a time when banks were experimenting with new ways of doing business. Consumer credit in the 1920s and pooling of mortgage debt in the 2000s. Both even followed asset bubbles, which occurred when prices exceed something, what something is actually worth. In the 20s, it was Florida real estate, <coughs> funny enough, and the stock market. And in the 2000s, it was overvalued tech companies and, and again, real estate. Notice the real estate. <coughs> Both started with sharp stock market declines in the first 18 months after the initial crash. Now, historians say the Great Depression was much worse, and judging by the immediate aftermath, that may be true. True, excuse me. Now, I'm no economist. I'm no economist. But I would argue that the true pain of the Great Recession may actually be in front of us. Now, I say this because with the Great Recession, the, the Federal Reserve began to pump money into the markets to pull us out of that recession. And that happened again with COVID. So the, the markets have been pumped up. By the way, that's what happened with the Great Depression and the Great Recession, right? If history repeats itself, we may be in a lot of economic pain in the next years to come. As I quoted earlier, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, you may be wondering, and I hope you are wondering, what in the world is he talking about? What is the connection to our study in Matthew? Well, I'm not here to give you an economic lesson. <clears throat> although I would love to give you wisdom, at least wisdom that I understand. But here in Matthew 1, Matthew gives us background information regarding the birth of Jesus. Now, earlier in our study, we saw that Israel, at the time of the birth of Egypt, or, or of the birth of Jesus, that is, at that time, during the writing of Matthew as well, we saw that Israel was occupied by the, the Romans. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, the evil king, Herod the Great, ruled Israel under the direction of Rome. There seemed to be, at that time, there seemed to be no hope for the, for the nation. You see, God's people faced a grim circumstance, a grim situation. Yet, in the malaise of their circumstances, Matthew points to Jesus as the true king, who is Emmanuel, God with us. As Matthew recounts the birth narrative in chapter 1, he reminds the, the readers of a similar time in Isaiah 7 when there seemed to be no hope for the nation. <clears throat> Yet at that time, in Isaiah's day, God proved to be faithful. God was Israel's Savior. Matthew argues that the birth of King Jesus will bring with it an even greater deliverance of God's people. 
In this text, Matthew points to the continued faithfulness to protect his remnant and to bring glory to himself and, by the way, to save his people from their sins. So after giving the human origin of King Jesus, Matthew gives the heavenly origin of King Jesus, our Savior. So in verses 18 through 25... We're going to study the four imperatives that, by the way, the four imperatives that you must believe about our Savior's heavenly origin. First, let's look at, we'll look at, we'll look at four. You must believe that the virgin birth was formulated. We must believe that it was forecast and foretold. You must believe it was fulfilled. And you must believe that it was brought to fruition. Now, I'll explain all of those as we go through the text. But before we jump into the text, I want to say up front that we are only going to do the first two points today. With that, let's quickly review up to this point in our series. We started by looking at the, king's, the keys to the king's court. Now, I want to bring these to mind periodically. We won't look at them every Sunday, but I want to set the foundation, and then we're going to, we're going to be brought, these things are going to be brought to your mind periodically so, so that we can understand the, the book of Matthew. Now, as the study progresses, we'll build on our understanding of these keys. But the first key to the king's court is knowing the history and the purpose of Matthew's gospel. We learned that Matthew wrote his gospel prior to the other gospel writers. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as such, he compiled what we can call a meticulous and perfect recording of perfect or pertinent events in Jesus' life and ministry, many of which he witnessed. So he wrote from his point of view. We also know that he wrote before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Therefore, those events not only in the, were not only in the future when Jesus prophesied them, but they occurred after Matthew wrote them, and that's important to understand. So, so Matthew's theme, then, was to present Jesus as the long-awaited king, and the, the Messiah. He clearly presents Jesus as the long-awaited divine king who came to earth who won redemption for his people and suffered and died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. So the second, now the second key to the king's court, the second key is knowing the setting of Matthew's gospel. It's very important. At the time of Jesus' first coming, Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. This created a peculiar culture because of the Jews' national pride and religious fervor. Now, the Roman military machine at the time was almost invincible and was expensive to maintain. This led to high taxes which were collected by what amounted to legalized extortion. It's an understatement to say that the Roman taxation system, a system of taxation, was incredibly corrupt. Yet some Jews participated with their occupiers, the Romans, by collecting taxes and becoming rich off the system. Because of this, along with their national pride and religious fervor, the people hated their Roman overlords, but they had to adjust to life with them, which created a peculiar situation. Now, the Jews had several religious sects. Now, these sects uh, periodically clashed with the Romans in different ways, and we'll learn more about them as we progress through our study in Matthew. But for now, we need to only mention that the Romans were the hated occupiers whom the Jews considered ceremonially, ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Truly, the Jews only tolerated the Romans because of the Roman military. That was the only reason. In other words, they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, the Roman machine, the military machine, would have crushed any uprising. And that actually came to a head when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in A.D. 70. They got to the point where the Romans just said, just said we've got to take them out. And that's what happened. Now this brings us to the third key to understanding, uh, to, to the king's court, is understanding the author's background. Matthew, uh, you know, again, we're, remember the Romans and the tax system. Matthew was a tax collector. He wrote this gospel. Now we've seen God, that God's use of a man like Matthew in that culture is amazing and profound. In Jewish society, he was a traitor and an unclean outcast. So he was worse than the Romans, let's put it that way. He was the last person 
beloved, he was the last person in the world to pen the good news of the king. Yet, Matthew himself was a picture of God's grace toward sinners. Matthew is not, only, is, is not the only picture, though, of God's grace found in this gospel. In, in Matthew 1, 1-17, we saw eight incredible portraits of grace. We called these the stories of God's of the king's grace. Really, understanding these stories of grace... Really understanding these stories of grace are the fourth and possibly the most critical key to the king's court. The fourth and most critical key or most important key to the king's court is, uh, again, understanding these stories of grace. In Matthew 1, 1 1-17, Matthew gives us uh, Jesus' earthly genealogy. Now his lineage, lineage, that is, proved that he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He is then the true king. Now as amazing as the genealogy of the king is, the stories of grace, I would say, are the backbone of that section. Truly, they're the backbone of the gospel. Now, you could, I could say the gospel, or I can say the gospel of Matthew. It's the backbone of the gospel. Grace is the backbone. And these stories of God's grace are dotted throughout Jesus' genealogy. Beloved, as we saw last week, the Bible tells it straight. It doesn't pull any punches. You see, Abraham, we just mentioned he's the son of Abraham, was a liar who struggled with his faith. He's the father of faith, but he struggled with his faith. Get that. David was a liar, murderer, and adulterer. Tamar, who's who's in there as well, played the harlot and deceived Judah. Judah himself suggested selling his brother Joseph into slavery. Rahab was a harlot from a pagan nation. Ruth was a, a, a Moabitess. Uh, the people of, of Israel were forbidden to marry the Moabites, yet she became the great-grandmother of King David. And David himself committed adultery with Bathsheba, who bore Solomon. And we all know about Solomon's many wives, right? And truly, these were just the highlights. There are many stories of the king's grace right down to Mary and Joseph. Even God's gracious choice of Israel is an incredible story of of the king's grace. Now let me give you an even more critical reality of God's grace. Let me apply this to us today. He is still saving sinners by his grace. Sinner, you stand, before, you stand condemned before, before a holy God. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. If you have believed in Jesus and have turned to Him from your sins, He will save you by His grace. Now, in the first 17 verses, Matthew gave us an overview of the human origin of Jesus, the Messiah the son of David and son of Abraham. And after proving the human origin of King Jesus, which gives Jesus the right, the the true right to the Davidic throne, Matthew gives us the heavenly origin of Jesus, our Savior. Let's look at the first of four imperatives you must believe about our Savior's heavenly origin. You must believe that the virgin birth was formulated. Now, as I am sure you've heard... probably have heard, the Queen of England died this past week. I've heard over the years that she had a keen interest in the Bible. She spent, it's well known that she spent time with well-known preachers during her lifetime. And I pray and hope that she stands justified before the Lord by the blood of Christ. But speaking of the royal family, did you know that in England there is a self-appointed town crier or town herald who takes it upon himself to announce family milestones? of the milestones of the royal family. For example, when babies are born, he stands on the hospital steps and cries out the unofficial, it's unofficial, he takes it upon himself, birth announcement. Back in 2013, he cried, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, on this day, the 22nd of July, the year 2013, we welcome with honorable duty a future king, the firstborn of the royal highness, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, the third in line to the throne. Our new prince is the third great-grandchild of Her Majesty, the Queen, and the first grandchild of the Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. May he, live, may he be long-lived, happy and glorious, and one day to reign over us, God save the Queen. Now, this may seem like a 
simple announcement of the birth of one who is to be the king. Yet, the official announcement of that is simpler still. Still, The royal family posts a placard on an easel outside of Buckingham Palace. The, the birth announcement is always formulaic. That's the point. It's always formulaic. In other words, it always has the same simple form. An announcement from 2018 says the following. Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge, was safely delivered of a son at 1101 today. Her Royal Highness and the child, her child are both doing well. Now just think of the simplicity of that announcement, considering the overwhelming media coverage of the British royal family. In just 26 words, they convey the mother's royal title, the gender, the time of birth, and the current status of the mother and child. They, are just, they use just 26 words to announce the birth of royalty. Well, here's what's interesting. Matthew also uses 26 Greek words to announce the greatest birth the world has ever known. The birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 26 Greek words to announce the birth of the great king. The, one, the king that is above all kings. Now, you'll find your English translation of those words in your Bibles in Matthew 18, where he writes, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's staggering to imagine the amount of truth conveyed in those 26 Greek words. Now, as we dive into Matthew's birth announcement, it is critical for you to understand that the first 17 verses gave the earthly origin of Jesus. Those verses, again, we've said it, those verses, again, prove that he was the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Yet, here's what's interesting. <clears throat> there were other kings in Matthew's genealogy, were there not? David, Solomon, there were other kings. The simple verse in Matthew 1.18 with just 26 words, assert that Jesus is not just an earthly king. He is the heavenly king, the Son of God. In other words, Matthew uses 26 words to proclaim that Jesus is the true and heavenly king of the world. Now let's look at it in depth. From the very start, Matthew wants his readers to know there's something different about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. He simply says, his birth is as follows. Now, the, the word translated birth comes from the Greek root that also is translated genealogy, that is, in Matthew 1.1. This connection alerts us, then, that, that Matthew is shifting gears. He is now explaining a different aspect of the birth, of, of Jesus' birth. Look back at your text in verse 18, where Matthew begins to give the exact circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. He says, when Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, Scripture doesn't give us many details about Mary. We saw last week that Mary was a godly young woman whom God chose to be the mother of Jesus. Now, just a brief study of her words in Luke 1 showed that she, was, she possessed a deep, knowledge of Scripture. Yet, she was a simple girl from Nazareth. She was likely no more than 12 or 13 at the time of Jesus' birth. Most likely, her family was poor. There was nothing worldly, there was nothing in this world, nothing about her in this world that would have made her a likely choice to be Jesus' mother, except, I mean, at least from a human, or a, our, our point of view. Now, while she was a godly young woman, we also know that she was not sinless. In Luke 1.47, she proclaims God as her Savior. Thus, she acknowledged the need for salvation. In Luke 1, when the angel announced to her that she would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit, she humbly wondered how that could be since she was a virgin. Yet, she believed his words, and she submitted herself to God's will. She simply answered 
him, the angel, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Now, I can't say that Mary would have understood the extent by which her life would change. She couldn't have known how much she would suffer along with her family. She certainly couldn't have understood how much her son would suffer. But she had to know that her life would profoundly change with this momentous event. Yet, she embraced all that God would do in her life. She said, may it be done according to your word. She didn't hesitate to follow God wherever he led her. Scripture gives even less information about Joseph. We know that his father's name was Jacob. That's according to verse, chapter 1, verse 16. Scripture tells us that he was probably a laborer who worked as a carpenter. Scripture portrays Joseph as a righteous man. That's in verse 19. We can surmise, based on the Jewish system, we can surmise that he was a few old, years older than Mary, but he was probably still a very young man. Now look back at your text in verse 18, Matthew 1.18. It says, When his mother, mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. Now this word translated betrothed, has the idea of engagement for the purpose of marriage. In our culture, in our own culture, when a couple decides to, mar- to marry, when, when one asks the other, when one asks the other, they are then considered engaged. And, and many times the, the man will give a ring to the, to the woman as a symbol of that engagement. But a couple's engagement in our culture is for social purposes. Generally, an engagement in our culture is, is a public, It's a public promise, but it's a non-binding promise to marry. In other words, if they decide not to marry, uh, no harm, no foul, right? In Jesus' culture, the culture of Jesus' day, the the betrothal actually marked the first stage of the marriage. This period usually lasted for a year before the actual wedding day, where they came together uh, uh, as husband and wife. Uh, This was a binding arrangement, and it took legal action to dissolve it. So during this time, the the girl usually remained in her family's home, but she was strongly tied, even legally tied, to her intended husband. Now in, in Deuteronomy 22, Moses says that this bond is strong enough to be called the man's wife. So, so it, it's, a, it's not engagement like we think of engagement. We think of engagement as being something that, that is a, just a public, public declaration or promise. But this was a very legal situation, and Moses even says in Deuteronomy 22, and, uh, 22 23, and 24 that they can even be uh, considered the, the, the man's wife. Similarly, the man was referred to as the husband, and we see that in Matthew 1.19, actually. And so Mary and Joseph, at this time, were in this year-long betrothal period before they came together to consummate the marriage. Now, we see that. Before they came together. He's speaking sexually. Before they actually came together to consummate that marriage, this was in that one-year period. Again, it was a legal arrangement, so it, had, it was stronger than our engagement, but the, it, they had not come together. They had not finalized the marriage, if you will. And so, so at that point, she was found to be with child. Now, you need to understand that this was a very, very, very serious issue for Mary and, and for Joseph, and especially Mary, though. In Deuteronomy 22... Moses says that the woman found in that particular situation should be treated as an adulteress by stoning her to death. Clearly, adultery then was a very serious offense. Most likely, by that time in history, though, Mary would not have been stoned, but she would have been ostracized by those around her. Uh, Put it a different way, her life would have been incredibly, incredibly difficult. But she could have been punished up to even stoning. She would have been, I mean, let's just say it this way, she would have been forced to do unspeakable things just to survive. 
If another man had impregnated Mary, her life would have been treated as nothing. She would have been just like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. I'll put it that way. She was clearly then dependent upon God's grace. When the angel came to her and said, You will be with child by the Holy Spirit, she says, Do with it, do, do as you will. That, would, I mean, that was complete dependence upon God's grace. Think about that. Just a few minutes ago, I used the birth announcements of the British royal, royal, royals. The crown's announcement is just a few simple words giving all the required information. Well, Matthew gives us all the information about this child and about this birth in three Greek words. So it's 26 Greek words to announce the, the, the coming of the king. Three Greek words, he gives us information that changes the whole narrative. She was found to be with child in Pneumatos, Agu. We translate this phrase by the Holy Spirit. He reverently tells his readers in those three words, uh, there's these three shocking words that this pregnancy was due to the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think about the reserve, I mean, you think about the royal family announcing this royalty, right? And, and you, they do it so simply. Matthew is amazingly reserved with this, his announcement that the child conceived in Mary's womb, he, he just says it, as matter of fact, is by the Holy Spirit. He gives the simple truth, no less, no more. That's it. Now he goes on to explain. Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. If that were of men, there would be Newspaper articles, there would be photographers, there would be all this stuff going on around, like, like the British royals, right? That's not how he announces it. It's simple. I want you to think of the impact of those three simple words. In the first 17 verses, he provided the human origin of the king. In 26 words, he gave the greatest birth announcement ever, ever uttered, just as we saw with the British royal family, uh, that the British royal family has a simple formula for announcing the royal birth. Friends, you must believe Matthew's simple formula for announcing the birth of true royalty. True royalty. The, what, the royals in, in Britain, that's not true royalty. Matthew uses a simple formula for announcing the birth of true royalty for announcing the birth of the heavenly king, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is imperative. It is imperative that you believe Mary was with child. Ek panumatas agu. By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. With these three simple words, Matthew declares the babe in Mary's womb is God incarnate, fully human, fully God, God in the flesh. You might say God in the bod. In, a, in the words of Sam Storms, we either believe the virgin birth or not, based upon our belief in the reality of the supernatural and the integrity of Scripture, end quote. Beloved, Scripture says it. Do you believe in the truthfulness of Scripture from cover to cover? The whole counsel of God, as Paul calls it. Do you believe that, that God can do this? This is a miracle. God can and did accomplish it. Beloved, do you believe in the supernatural? Supernatural. Do you believe in the virgin birth? And more, important, and more importantly than that, do you believe in Jesus' supernatural conception and birth? Let's look at the second of four imperatives you must believe about our Savior's heavenly origin. You must believe that the virgin birth was 
forecast and foretold. Look at your text in verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, we can't overstate. I, I went through it, but I, you can't overstate the scandal that would have ensued Mary's situation. If Mary were pregnant by another man, this would have been an utterly shameful act. And Joseph fully understood the implication of what Mary had allegedly done. First, he knew that he couldn't marry her if she had committed adultery against him. He he couldn't, because he was a righteous man. Secondly, he recognized that that he recognized what would actually happen to Mary if he chose to enforce the law against him and against her, and and he was beloved with well within his rights to do so. Matthew tells us though that Joseph was a righteous man. He could not, in good conscience, marry Mary. This would have been even possibly an, an admission of his own guilt. Yet. He was unwilling to expose her to the disgrace of a public divorce and the full ridicule of what would have ensued. Therefore, Matthew tells us he chose to put her her away, a quieter way permitted by the law. You see, the law also allowed, so the law, according to Deuteronomy 22, that she would be publicly stoned, The law at that time, at Matthew's time, at Joseph's time, also allowed for a private divorce before two witnesses. See, Joseph wanted to follow the law, but he also had high moral standards. And and I, I just want you to think about this from not only Mary's position, but from Joseph's position. He was in seemingly an impossible situation. He knew that, he knew Mary, the Mary that he knew was a godly young woman. He had to see that. Right, we saw Luke chapter 1. He had to know how, how uh, godly this young woman was. Yet he couldn't deny that she was pregnant. And, and if, he, if she was pregnant, then he knew it wasn't by him. He knew he wasn't the father. Yet Matthew doesn't give us much information, much more information about Joseph and Mary's relationship. But I'm confident that Joseph loved Mary. And, and Joseph wanted what was best for Mary. His heart must have been full of anguish over, these situa- over the circumstances. I mean, Luke tells us then that, that around this time, Luke tells us around this time, Mary went without Joseph to visit John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. She confirmed when she went to visit with Elizabeth, Elizabeth confirmed that the child in Mary's womb had been conceived by the Holy Spirit because John actually jumped in the womb when Mary came in. One can only imagine the anguish in Mary's heart as she made that difficult journey to visit Elizabeth. She knew what the angel had told her, but she had to know the implications of being found pregnant. She had to know. Look back at your text and... Matthew one twenty. He was going to say, so Joseph was going to put her away secretly, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, I hope you can again sense the great drama playing out in Mary and Joseph's lives. I don't think that we can completely understand it. Uh, the, I mean, it, it's, it, seemed, uh, it had to seem hopeless. Uh, but the angel tells Joseph the truth. Uh, literally, this is a message from on high. The child, which had been conceived in Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. Now, this had to be great news for, for Joseph, who was called the son of David by the angel. Again, that title, Son of David, connected Jesus to the royal line back to David through Joseph. The, the angel's pronouncement was, was then truly amazing. Joseph had to know. He had to know that he and Mary, if he came back together with Mary, that he and Mary would be exposed to an incredible stigma of having an Ill- illegitimate child. Mark 
in his gospel, gives us a little taste of this in Mark 6, 3, where Jesus' hometown folks call him not the son of Joseph. In Mark 6, 3, he calls, the, the people call him the son of Mary, uh, referring to what was known about his illegitimate birth. You see, in human terms, Joseph had much to fear. But the angel tells him to never fear to take Mary as his wife. In other words, he tells Joseph, you've no reason to fear now or ever. No matter what happens, no matter what happens to, to Joseph and Mary, they can take great solace in the fact that the child uh, is of the Holy Spirit. You see, the forecast for Joseph and Mary was for turbulent and sometimes tragic days. Were they, were they not? In, in, I mean, it was going to be a difficult time. And, and, and there was going to be tragedy in their life. But they could live in great confidence and hope without any fear because God would protect them. Oh, by the way, we serve the same God. We serve the same God today. He will. We can live in great confidence and hope. We can live without fear. No matter what happens in this world, we can live without fear because we serve the, great, the, the God that uh, Joseph and Mary serve. Look at verse, at the back of the angel's words in verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here the angel foretells the birth of a son, the Messiah. He told Joseph that his name shall be called Jesus, which, which will, he will be Joshua or, or Yeshua. His name means Yahweh will save. In the words of John MacArthur, all other men who had those names testified by their names to the Lord's salvation. But this one, who would be born to Mary, not only would testify of God's salvation, but would himself be that salvation. End quote. Matthew has told us that Jesus' name will be Jesus' name, that his name would be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He also told us that Jesus has is, is, is been conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is both God and man. In the words of the theologian Bruce Ware, Christ must be both God and man to atone for sin. But for this to occur, he must be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of human origin, or virgin, of a human virgin, that is. No one else in, history of the, in the history of the world is conceived by the, the Spirit and born of a virgin mother. Therefore, Jesus alone qualifies to be Savior. End quote. <clears throat> Beloved, Jesus alone can save you from your sins. There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's Peter's words in Acts 4. And the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 2.9 God also exalted, highly exalted him, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, beloved, as you sit here today, have you bowed your knee to him? Will you bow your knee to him now? Truly, truly, outside of Christ, you stand condemned before a holy God. The angel foretold that Jesus will save his people from their sins. If you are not in Christ here today, you will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here's the truth. You will do it in condemnation. 
before a holy God who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Sinner, outside of Christ, you stand eternally condemned. In the words of the Apostle Paul, for the wages of sin is death. You face eternal death for your sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers you the free gift of eternal life if you will call upon His name. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that He is virgin-born, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the rightful heir, heavenly king? Well, if you believe it, trust in Him. Trust in Him. Trust in His work of salvation on the cross. Trust in His perfect life and His life, and His death, and His resurrection, and His ascension. Trust that He's on the throne of God today, that He is reigning on high. He truly is the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Do it now. Do it now. Don't wait another moment if you haven't done so. Earlier I told you that at the time of Jesus' birth, the evil king Herod the Great ruled Israel under the direction of Rome. There was seemingly no hope for the nation. Yet, Matthew points to Jesus our Lord as the true King who is Emmanuel, God with us. I hope you'll come back next week as we conclude this section. In, these, in the next few verses, Matthew reminds them of a similar time during the, king, the reign of King Ahaz of Judah. Israel and Judah were in danger of being overrun by their enemies. Yet at that time, God proved to be faithful. He was their Savior. Here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew argues that the birth of King Jesus will bring with it an even greater deliverance of God's people. Come back next week and be amazed.